0: Alright, it's good to see you this morning, glad you're here. We're going to continue our study of the book of Romans today. We'll be in chapter 14. Romans 14. Just by way of uh, preview... It's our plan, of course, to finish our survey of Romans next Sunday morning. We'll cover the last two chapters, 15 and 16, in one lesson. And then for our summer uh, quarter on Sunday mornings, uh, the adult classes will be studying uh, the Psalms. Uh, Certainly not, not all 150 in one quarter. Uh, so it will be kind of a, a select studies in the Psalms, and that will begin uh, the first Sunday in June and take us through the, uh, through the summer, summer quarter. The plan is, uh, after one introductory lesson, then we'll basically cover one psalm per, uh, per Sunday morning, per class session. Just different ones, selected ones uh, from the book of Psalms. So that's uh, that's what's ahead. And of course, Wednesday nights in the summer, we'll have guest speakers uh, with various uh, lessons. If you're visiting with us today, thank you for taking the time out of your Sunday morning to come and be a part of our, uh, our Bible class. We're glad that you're here, and we want to begin by going to God in prayer and following our prayer together, we'll study Romans chapter 14. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for the opportunity that in your providence you've blessed us with today. We can come together and spend a few minutes studying before we assemble for our worship hour. We pray, Father, that you would bless our study today, that we would show proper honor and respect to your word and to you as well. And we pray that um, lessons we learn today will will benefit us, will help us to be stronger, will help us to be uh, more knowledgeable, and will help to mold our character to be more what you would have us to be. We pray, Father, that you would bless those of, of our number here at Graver Road who are ill, those that are bereaved, Uh, and uh, those that uh, need your special care in other ways. We pray that you would bless each one according to your will uh, and certainly in harmony with their need. We thank you most of all for everything that uh, our Lord and our Savior has done for us and is doing for us as our mediator and intercessor even today. And it's through him that we pray. Amen. All right. Fourteenth chapter of the book of Romans. You heard me say before, and you'll probably hear me say again, that life is a series of choices. From morning until night, we make choices. uh, And... Some important, some not so much. But we make choices all the time. And not every choice that we make involves a matter of right and wrong. Not every choice we make involves a matter of good versus evil. Uh, Some choices that we make, a lot of choices that we make, involve just matters of personal opinion. Personal preference. And one of the challenges that we face uh, as Christians is being able to discern between which choices fall into each of those categories. What choices do we make? Uh, you know, the choices we make, which ones are matters of opinion and which ones are matters of, uh, of doctrine or obligation? And it's one of the things that, uh, unfortunately, I've seen in in recent years, and I guess not just in recent years. I'm sure Alan's seen this too, in uh, in, in his life in ministry, uh, and you probably have too. Is that a lot of times people lack people lack discernment and the ability, it seems, to exercise that discernment in uh, properly categorizing what constitutes a matter of opinion, and what constitutes a matter of right versus wrong. What choices do we need to be alarmed about? <laughs> Which choices do we just need to allow people to make without, uh, without interference uh, from uh, from us, from anyone? So it's a difficult thing sometimes to exercise that discernment. But it's something that we need to develop. We need to know how to determine what constitutes a matter of discernment or a matter of opinion or expedience or option versus matters of obligation. Well, this is what Romans 14 is about it's about matters of personal opinion and how we should treat each other in regard to those kinds of matters. I want to give you an example. Of, of the kind of thing that I'm talking about, and I recognize this is going to be an extreme example, um, but it's, it's an example nonetheless, and it's a, it's a true story, uh, because, uh, because I was there and witnessed this myself. I was, uh, I was preaching uh, for a, a congregation of the Lord's Church, some years ago, and um, on the uh, on the stage, uh, the, the podium area. You see, we have individual chairs. At the time where I was, we had uh, you know just short pews, little little benches, had one on each side that would you know hold two or three people. And um, uh, and it was decided. And I don't remember, even remember what the reason was. The decision was made that, well, we're, we're going to move those benches um, to another part of the building. Maybe that was the reason that they could be utilized better there. And um, uh, and in place of the benches, we were going to put individual chairs, two on each side. And and so the decision was made, and, and the deed was done, and the chairs were there, and... Um, uh, and not long after that decision had been made and the choice made, someone went went to the elders and uh, and very strenuously objected to that change having been made. And the reason was is that this individual had noticed in her experience. That only quote unquote liberal churches had chairs <laughs> <clears throat> and uh, and they were concerned that that was the first step that the congregation was taking into a headlong dive into liberalism and just completely tossing out biblical authority and everything else and they were she was very she was very uptight about that, and she was concerned that that uh, that, that we were heading in the wrong direction because we put chairs up there instead of benches. Now granted, that's an extreme example of someone not being able to discern between things that are matters of opinion and matters of doctrine. But the fact that it happened is an indication that yes, sometimes folks struggle to understand how to do that. Um, And sometimes decisions are made or not made, as it were, based upon nothing more than, is it different? Or is it, um, you know, it's not the way we've always done it. We've never done it that way before. And for some people, that's that's a good enough reason uh, to think that anything that differs from that is, uh, is objectionable, and, and more than objectionable, and more than just a difference of opinion, but wrong. And so, and things like that have caused problems in congregations, and it's unfortunate, it's beyond unfortunate, it's tragic, that, that we struggle so much with this area of discernment that congregations can have to wade through these kinds of difficulties um because we haven't been able to handle matters of opinion as matters of opinion. And we elevate them sometimes to matters of things that are far more important than they really are. Well, <clears throat> Paul in Romans 14 is addressing certain matters of opinion. And evidently, these matters were causing some friction in the church at Rome. Um, I, I don't know of any other reason why Paul would address these matters uh, unless there was a good reason to address them. Uh, so this was evidently an indication that there was at least some, some measure, some level of strife or friction involving some of these things. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're not alone Uh, In our day, in dealing with this issue, in discerning matters of opinion versus matters of obligation or doctrine. Paul addresses it here in Romans 14. So, let's begin. And basically, there are two two particular areas that he addresses, and we'll address them both uh, as well. All right, here we go. Chapter 14, book of Romans. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. All right, we'll start there. Paul identifies two classes of people in verse number 2. Those who believe that they can eat anything they like, and those who eat vegetables only. And he identifies the one who eats vegetables only in this situation as the weaker person. Now, we need to make sure we understand why that person is called weaker. It's, it's not because um, it, it's not because that person has simply chosen on his or her own uh, desire to be a vegetarian. Uh, That's that's really not the issue. The issue is that person has chosen only to eat vegetables because that person thinks that that's the morally right choice. Now, why would somebody do that? Why would somebody think that it was a a moral issue, a right or wrong issue, uh, in choosing whether to eat meat or not eat meat? Well, Paul doesn't specifically say... In Romans, and so what I'm about to say is, is speculation, but I think um, I think it will offer us perhaps a little perspective on what it might possibly have been. Paul addressed a matter in the book of uh, First Corinthians that involved people who had a problem eating meat that had been uh, previously offered in sacrifice to an idol, and we we studied the the two Corinthian letters some months ago. We won't go back over all of that. But there were, there were Christians who could not in clear conscience eat meat that had been used in some kind of, of idol worshiping ceremony where it was sacrificed. And then the meat from the sacrifice was taken and sold in the market. And, uh, and they had a conscience problem with that. And basically, Paul's answer to that was, well, an idol is Nothing. People may think it's some kind of a deity or representation of a deity, but an idol's nothing. And so the simple fact that somebody else offered that in you know, in some kind of worship to a false god, it doesn't taint the food at all and it doesn't involve you in the in the worship of that idol. That was something that they did, and all you're doing is buying the meat for your consumption. And there's not anything wrong with that. And so Paul encouraged them in that context, you know, it, there, there's no issue there. Go ahead and eat it. But if it violated their conscience and they could not with a clear conscience eat that particular meat uh, because of that reason, then he said don't violate your conscience. That may have been the background of Romans 14. We don't know that because he, he doesn't specifically mention meats sacrificed to idols, he just mentions meats. and um, And so it may have also involved if not that then maybe it involved uh, those uh, in the church at Rome who were Jewish Christians. We know that there were some that were addressed in the letter because he did that early on. And maybe it was the Jewish Christians who, having coming having come out of Judaism and all of those dietary restrictions under the law of Moses, you know, no pork and things like that, that perhaps um, they were having a conscience problem uh, accepting the freedom that they had under the law of Christ to eat whatever they wanted, and their consciences were still bothering them. And so, and then maybe it was a combination. Maybe you had Jewish Christians that, that still struggled with, uh, you know, doing away with those dietary restrictions. Plus, you had all these meats that they could buy in the marketplace, and who knows whether or not those had been sacrificed to an idol or not. And perhaps maybe all of that being involved they simply said, you know what, it'd be better if everybody just gave up meat altogether, then we won't have to worry about this, and let's just all eat vegetables. And they felt that way so strongly that evidently, they thought that was the moral and right choice to make. But whatever the reason, whatever the background, the fact is, there were Christians who thought that they needed to just abstain from meat altogether. And that was where they had staked their position. But there were other Christians who believed, you know, you can eat anything you want. Uh, There there aren't any dietary restrictions like that under the law of Christ. So those are the two groups of people identified in those first two verses. Now, the church is told... In verse 1, how to deal with those who are of the opinion that everybody ought to abstain from meat. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. If this person wants to stake their claim on that theological real estate, that they need to eat just vegetables only and abstain from all meat, if, if that's their choice, that's fine. Welcome them. But don't welcome them just, just so y'all can argue over this matter of ultimately opinion. It's a matter of personal judgment. So he says in verse 3, Let not the one who eats, idea of meat, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. So Paul makes the point and makes it clearly that as far as God is concerned, this is a matter of personal judgment. It's if, if a person wants to eat meat, they can eat meat. God's not concerned about that. He hasn't made any restrictions or dietary laws about that in the New Covenant. And so, if you're of that number, fine. But don't despise the person who believes that they can't do that in clear conscience and they're just going to abstain. And the person who abstains, that's fine. You can abstain if you want to. That's your choice. But you can't pass judgment on the one who eats because God has welcomed him. Both are welcomed in the presence of God. All right? So the the choice is fine either way. But as is often the case... People like to um, people like for others to agree with them. Don't we like that? Don't you know we we prefer agreement over conflict. And every opinion that I have ever held in my life, I held that opinion for one reason. Why? Because <laughs> I thought it was the right one. You know, I'm not going to hold an opinion that I don't think is right. Nobody's going to do that. The reason why we hold the opinions that we hold in matters of opinion is because we think they're the right ones. We've gone through the process of reasoning and uh, hopefully and, you know, whatever process we've gone through, we have decided this is what I believe about this, that or the other, because we've gone through some process and that's the one we think is right. So everybody who has an opinion has it because they think it's the right one. Yeah, Doug. Yes. Yeah, and that's a good point. If you didn't catch that, Doug was saying that um, that a good way to frame this discussion is, and the reason why the discussion can even be had, is because these are matters uh, that are that are matters of indifference to God. That if God wasn't indifferent toward these things, then um, then there would be no room for discussion and difference of opinion. Uh, because if God has spoken on a matter and made his will known, then the, then the issue settled. Uh, but if God is indifferent towards some things, then we may choose within that within that uh, umbrella or under that umbrella, we may choose whichever way we want to go if God's indifferent toward those matters. And that's what we have here in chapter 14. Um uh, one other example uh, that just popped into my head about things that, to which God is indifferent, but that the early church struggled with, was the matter of uh, circumcision for, uh, for you know, newborn uh, males. Um, those coming out of a Jewish background, uh, a part of their heritage, that was something extremely important to them. Gentiles, not so much. Uh, and so there was division among Christians in, in the early church, Gentile and Jewish, who had differences of opinion on that. Well, Paul stated in Galatians 5 verse 6, In Christ, neither circumcision matters nor uncircumcision, but faith that works through love. So here was a matter where God said, you know what, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So you make your choice. You make your choice, however you want to do that. You make your choice, however you, don't, you want to do that. Y'all live together, but don't try to force the other side to adopt your opinion on that because they don't have to. They're free to have their own opinion about that. And these are the kinds of matters that we've got here, this matter of eating uh, eating meats uh, and so forth, all right? Now, look at verse 4, where Paul asks a very pointed question. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So when it comes to these matters of opinion, Paul said, you know what? Who, who, do, you, who do you think you are <laughs> to pass judgment on somebody else over a matter of opinion? Who, what authority do you think you have to tell somebody else in a matter of indifference that you have to reach the same conclusion about that as I do. Because that person does not answer to you, and you don't answer to that person. Who do we answer to? We answer to God. All right? God is the master. The Lord is our master before whom we stand or fall. And so when it comes down to a matter of indifference, not a matter of doctrine, a matter of indifference... I don't have the authority to say to you, you have to to hold my opinion on this because it's better than yours. I don't have that authority. Uh, Neither neither do you have the authority to say, I have to believe the same way you believe about that. Because it's a matter of indifference. It's a matter of opinion. All right. Now, he uses another example. Verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. All right, so he mentions here in passing this idea of uh, esteeming days, one day as uh, as better than another. And another, you know, and somebody else doesn't do that. Well, he doesn't identify what these days are uh, that some esteem and that some do not. <clears throat> so again, we're left to, um, uh, to see if there's, you know, if what that may be, but recognize the fact that we are engaging in some level of speculation. But like we did with the other, I think there are reasons why we might be able to pinpoint some possibilities. What about um, uh, what about the possibility again? Jewish people coming out of that that some people observed a day of rest on the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath. Um, you know, if that came out of, and it did, if it came out of uh, God's having rested on the seventh day, well, that predated the law of Moses. You know, that that was that's back to creation. There were some who may have thought, you know what? Uh, you know, I, I want to honor that uh, in honor of God and in honor of his uh, his resting on the seventh day, not because I think that. I'm divinely obligated to do that because of what it stated in the Law of Moses, but just as a personal thing, I want to honor the Sabbath and honor God's rest by me taking a day of rest. Maybe there were some conscience matters involving some Jewish Christians with regard to that, and some were uh, were taking a day of rest on the seventh day. What about... Um, What about the possibility of days of fasting? Think about that for just a moment. You know, there are no specific requirements in the New Testament uh, for fasting. In other words, under the law of Moses, um, you know, sometimes you had an, an, an obligatory fast. We don't have any obligatory fasts under the law of Christ. However, it does seem like when Jesus talked about fasting that he expected that his disciples would do that. Uh, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus, uh, kind when he was talking about um, how the, the, the scribes and Pharisees were really good at trying to show others how holy they were, And so they would parade their good deeds before others and and those kinds of sound the trumpet in the street when they were going to make a charitable donation or whatever. Well, in that context, Jesus addressing that, he said, beginning in chapter six, when you do a charitable deed, do it this way. When you pray, do it this way. When you fast. Don't do like the hypocrites do and they disfigure their faces and all of that. Wash your face. You know, fix yourself up because you're not fasting for men, you're fasting for God. When you give, when you pray, when you fast. Sounds like all three of those were things that Jesus expected that his disciples would do at, at some point, right? So again, I'm not saying that there's an obligation laid down in Scripture, but I do think it sounds like Jesus was expecting that that would happen among his disciples. In Matthew 9, um, uh, you know, Jesus um, was approached by some of his antagonists about uh, about his disciples. These were disciples of John, actually, that came and said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not? His answer was, into verse 15, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So my disciples aren't fasting right now because they're in the presence of the bridegroom. In other words, but I'm going to go away and after that they'll fast. So they weren't fasting then, but Jesus expected that they would be doing that after he ascended back to heaven. Now, that being the case, and incidentally, you find an example in Acts 13, verse 2, of uh, the first century church, one particular group of them were involved in fasting. Acts 13, too, they were praying and fasting. So we find examples about that. Christians were doing that. Might it be the case then, at least a possibility, that there were Christians who had... Um, uh, who had decided that on a particular day, maybe they were doing it weekly, maybe they were doing, you know, maybe it was, had become some kind of regular thing. And they felt like that that was something that they needed to do personally. There was a personal decision, a personal choice, that they were going to esteem Thursdays as, uh, as something more special than other days of the week because that was the day on which they were going to fast. As a spiritual exercise, to uh, to to be closer to God and to focus on spiritual things, maybe more so than they did on other days of the week, was a Christian allowed to do that? Sure, that's Paul's point. There ain't anything wrong with that? Person wants to set aside a day, something like that. That's fine. The issue is when somebody else looks down on them for doing it or judges them as being somehow unfaithful for doing it or the person who does it looks at somebody else as being unfaithful because they don't do it. Paul is saying, look, these are matters of personal choice. God is indifferent toward these things. And so you need to be indifferent toward these things as far as casting judgments on each other about whether you do or whether you don't. Um, what, about, um, what about just other personal days of, of, of remembrance? Perhaps, and I'm thinking more now in terms of maybe things that we might do. Perhaps uh, an individual or a family wants to set aside uh, time to, uh, to remember and celebrate special events like baptism anniversaries. You know, if you if you remember the the specific day on which you obeyed the gospel, and every year when that day comes around, if you want to set aside time as that being a very special day to you, to where maybe you don't do other things that you normally do, you abstain from other things, and and you spend uh, that day thinking about, focusing on what Jesus has done for you and, and his death, and what that means for you and 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 your Christian life, and and all that, and you set aside that special day that you're going to do that every year. Can you do that? Sure. Why not? It's a matter of indifference. And but but you can't you can't force me to observe that day. You can't bind that on me that I have to observe that day like you're observing it. And I can't look down on you and tell you you shouldn't do it. Because, again, it's a matter of one's personal, individual choice. Okay, So we can't make the church, as the church, observe that day because, again, it's a matter of personal choice. You know, your, your day of, of, of when you were baptized, it's great, Okay, but I'm not going to set aside time to, to remember... That anniversary of yours. I'm just I'm not gonna do that. Okay? It's my choice. You want to set aside that date? That's fine, do that. That's great. I'm not gonna condemn you for that. I don't have any reason to condemn that. Okay? Those are personal matters that can't be brought into and and forced upon other people because they're matters of individual personal choice. Alright? Paul in Acts 18 had taken some kind of vow. In Acts 18 verse 18, as Paul was was making his way uh, on one of his uh, journeys, Acts 18:18. 18, 18, After this, Paul stayed many days longer. This is in Corinth, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. What in the world? I don't know. That's the only thing that's said about that in all the New Testament. Have no idea what the vow was. Have no idea what it involved. But it was Paul. Paul did it. Paul had taken some kind of vow. He had made some kind of promise. That had something to do with his hair. he have a right to do that? Sure. Yeah. Did he have a right to tell others they had to do it? No. Because God hadn't specifically legislated that. This was Paul's choice. This was what he wanted to do. And so he did it. Do I have a right to say Paul shouldn't have done it? No. Why not? Well, because it's Paul's choice. This is a matter of indifference to God. God hasn't spoken on that matter. And so Paul was free to, to make a promise to God if he wanted to, and 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 if it had something to do with his hair, okay. Right, I don't understand it. But that's that's Paul's business. If I want to stand before God in my own private, you know, interaction with him and make a promise that I am going to do. This, that, or the other. and um, uh, Or I'm not going to do this, that, or the other until such and such a time. Do I have a right in my own personal relationship with God to make a promise like that to Him? Yeah, sure, sure I do. It's, it's very similar to probably what Paul did. But I don't have a right to say, since I made that promise, so do you. You have to do it too. No, I don't have that right because I stand or fall before my master. You stand or fall before yours. You don't answer to me. (laughs) So I can't make you do it. and I can't condemn you for not doing it. But neither can you condemn me for doing it. This is a matter between me and God. All right. So those are the kinds of things that we're talking and the same with the dietary preferences. He mentions in verse number six. He said, you know, those that eat meat, they give thanks to God for what they're eating. And so, in a sense, they're doing this for God, or at least in honor of God. They're doing this for Him. Those that abstain, the things that they eat, they give thanks to God for that too. So, in a sense, they're eating what they're eating to God. Because they've, they've called Him into that by their offering of thanks to Him. So both are doing what they're doing for God. Personal matters, personal choices, personal decisions. I can't tell them, either one of them, that they're wrong, and neither one can condemn the other. Seven through nine. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we're the Lord's. Paul's point there is: we share a commonality; we share a relationship each of us with God. Everything we do, from life to death, we do not in isolation from every other Christian, but we do it, we do it in communion with, in fellowship with other Christians, because we share that common bond with God. And so that ought to play a major role in how we treat each other over these matters of indifference. So instead of passing judgment, you get down to 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. All right, and there's the emphasis in verse 12 is of himself. We're all going to stand before God. Every knee is going to bow. But each one is going to give an account of himself to God. When I stand before God, I'm going to account for what I've done. You're going to give account for what you've done. But before whom am I going to give that account? Well, to God. So on that last day, you're not going to stand in front of me and have to justify before me what you did with regard to these matters of indifference. I'm not your master. I'm not your Lord. I'm not your judge. You'll stand before God and answer to him for the thing. We'll all do that. So the the key is, what's God's view of these things? Well, God's indifferent toward them. All right? Then so should we be. All right? So instead of passing judgment over these matters of opinion, focus on our own lives, recognizing that we'll each give an account of ourselves to God. Okay? So, dietary restrictions, steaming days... You'll answer to God for those things that you do with regard to your personal relationship with him. But we cannot run roughshod over the consciences of others by taking our personal desires and beliefs and trying to push them onto other people so that they accept our opinions on those matters of option. And that's the second section of the chapter beginning in verse 13 on how these actions affect others. Paul wants them to make sure that they're not putting hindrances and occasions of stumbling in front of each other. All right, look at 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, which does indicate that they were already doing it. In other words, let's stop doing that, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. And Paul introduces in this section the role of the conscience and how important it is that people not violate it. In the case of eating meat, there's no law that prohibits that. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. So as far as God's concerned, there's not anything wrong with eating any kind of meat. God's okay with that. But notice the end of verse 14, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So from God's perspective, you can eat meat unless you can't do it with a clear conscience. If you can't do it with a clear conscience, then you need to abstain. Because the conscience serves a vital uh, purpose in the individual. The conscience is that part of us that, incidentally, atheists and evolutionists kind of explain the development of. We have it. And the conscience is that part of our... Spirit, our mentality, our inner being, that based on what it's been taught, we'll talk more about that in a moment, will either excuse our actions as being okay, or will accuse us, accuse our inner selves, that we've done something wrong. And if, if, And we need to take into account how our actions might affect the conscience of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul goes on to say in verses 15 and 16 that if the meat eater flaunts his right in front of weaker brothers, then he's really not acting in a very loving manner. Because there are things that are far more important than eating and drinking. Verse 17, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit are more important than what a person eats or drinks. And so our desire should be to pursue the things that promote peace and not conflict. That's verses 18 and 19. All right, then he restates... I'm going to hurry here toward the end of class. He restates the importance of not destroying a brother by causing him to stumble over a matter of opinion. That's verses 20 and 21. And this is this is important to remember. When he talks about making a brother stumble, that would involve that brother engaging in the action that he thinks is wrong. And some people have misunderstood this principle before. And we talked about it, I remember, when we studied uh, 1 Corinthians letter months ago. Just because somebody thinks that eating meat is wrong doesn't mean that everybody else has to stop eating it. Okay, Because Paul said, "You, you can eat whatever you want. But if I use my influence as as an eater of meat to get someone else to also eat meat in violation of that person's conscience, then I have caused that person to stumble. I've caused that person to do that which actually violates their conscience and constitutes sin on their part. And so I've contributed to their sin. Someone has said it well that there's a difference between Causing someone to grumble and causing them to stumble. There's a big difference in that. And some people have said, and and um, and and uh, you know, here's here's one example we might use. You know, I, I knew a, a, a fine Christian lady who thought that any time uh, a woman attended a worship assembly of the saints, that she needed to be in a dress. Um, and. You know, that was her opinion. But there were times when she would say, well, and, and because, and when I see uh, a woman in pants at worship, uh, that offends me. And that causes me to stumble, and so they shouldn't do that. Well, no, it didn't cause her to stumble. She wasn't wearing pants. She wasn't violating her conscience, which would have been a stumbling. All she was doing was grumbling about it. The fact that she couldn't meant that she shouldn't. She shouldn't violate her conscience. But if by you know, if by others wearing pants she did, in clear violation of her own conscience, then she would have been stumbling. Beyond that, it was a personal matter that she didn't have the right to bind on somebody else. Because this was a matter of which God was indifferent. God hasn't spoken on that matter. So I couldn't, she, or excuse me, she couldn't bind that on others to force them to wear dresses. But nor should anybody else condemn her for thinking that that's all she could wear. Does that make sense? These are the types of things that he's talking about, all right? And so um, we need to consider how our actions might affect somebody else. And if it causes somebody else to violate their conscience and actually do the thing that they think is wrong for them to do, then we need to rethink our influence because we care about that person's soul. And we don't want them to violate their conscience uh, in, in that matter. So conscience as such needs to be educated. Conscience is not a safe guide in itself because many times... If a person's not properly educated, their conscience will not convict them when they do something that in reality is actually wrong. Okay? So conscience is not a safe guide in itself for that reason. But, on the other hand, it's a safe guide in this sense that I know that I should never violate my conscience. Because the more we violate our conscience, the less well it works. And there's a point at which we could have our consciences seared. Didn't Paul use that terminology to Timothy? Well, a conscience gets seared the more a person violates it and gets used to violating it. So that's why he says at the end, if you can't do it in faith, then don't do it. Because anything that's not of faith is sin. If you can't do something, even an optional matter, if you can't do it in clear conscience, don't do it Because that for you constitutes sin, even though in and of itself it's not a sinful thing. All right. Okay. Thank you much. Yes, Alan. I think it's important to note that if you've had a struggle in the church and continue to have it about what you mentioned earlier about people not being able to discern between opinion and doctrine, because we're having people tell us you can worship however you want because it's your opinion. Right. It's not your opinion. Yeah. Yes. That's how we Right. Yeah, and that's the other side of discernment. You know, is uh, Alan was saying, the other side of that is there are some people who take matters that are clearly doctrinal matters where God has spoken, and they want to take those and move them into the realm of opinion, which they don't have the authority to do, such as he mentioned the reason why we're baptized and how we worship. Those are things that God has spoken about that aren't matters of opinion that God has made his own judgment about and it's up to us to stand with God where he has made his judgment and not take matters of opinion and move them. You know, We need to avoid both extremes. Don't take a matter of opinion and put it into doctrine and don't take a matter of doctrine and relegate it to opinion. And how do we do that? Discernment. Understanding what the Bible teaches and what it does All right, very good. Thank you much.